We continue our series on Exodus. That's the passage we hope to get to this morning. We'll stop at verse 7. And then next Sunday, we'll go on from verse 8, which is where the Amalekites come. And you know that story where Joshua's down in the, in the valley fighting the Amalekites and Moses and Aaron and her are up on the mountain holding up his staff. And that battle, that's going to be next Sunday with chapter 18. So if you want to read ahead and meditate on that during the days of this week, or in fact, you might also like to follow up from today's chapters. I'm going to read to you from Exodus chapter 15, which is where we're beginning today. And verse 22. This is just after the incident of the Red Sea, which is what Pastor Brendan spoke to us about last week, and the song of celebration of Moses and Miriam and the people of Israel. And then from when the music stops, verse 22 says, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they travelled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they couldn't drink its water either because it was bitter. That's why the place is called Mara. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? And Moses cried out to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water and the water became fit to drink. Then the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes... If you pay attention to his commands and keep all of his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the, other, any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. And then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. And then chapter 16 goes on to talk about the quail coming at night and the manna, and we're going to get through all of that this morning I trust that's the plan let's pray together father again thank you for your word these stories are reasonably familiar to us we pray that you would nonetheless still open our eyes to see truth truth that's relevant to us relevant to us as we journey through life we ask that you would be pleased to not just enlighten us but empower us and motivate us to listen carefully to all that you say and to do exactly what you require. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. In the events of the Exodus where we've covered so far, we have certainly seen God as a God of power, demonstrated in his overthrowing Pharaoh and the plagues. He's a God of timing, says things are going to happen tomorrow or things are going to happen whenever and they seem to happen at that time, and that'll occur again this morning. As the people of Israel move from Egypt and move towards Sinai, we also see that God is not just a God of salvation, but of judgment, that in the one event, in the slaying of the firstborn, the Passover, he can both judge and save at one and the same time, exactly what he did with the cross of the Lord Jesus. And then from this journey on, having crossed through the Red Sea, we're going to learn about God's providential care, that he's the one who can provide for us at whatever our point of need is, but he is also the one who tests us. He is watching us, he is caring for us, but he's also testing us, training us, shaping us to become more like the Lord Jesus, training us to listen, training us to obey, training us to trust him which is exactly what the Lord Jesus did perfectly when he was here on earth. 
Charles Swindle writes in his book on Moses, he talks about a time when he had a history teacher and that reminded me when I was in year nine and I was doing ancient history and in year nine I got a new history teacher. I can't remember her name but I can remember her. I can remember what she looked like, I can remember what she smelt like. She was tall, she was not an attractive facially woman, she had long wavy hair, glasses, used to smoke those very thin dark cigars because you could smell it on her. And she used to drink tea by the potload because her breath always smelt of tea, always. But man, she loved history and she loved to teach history. One day she came to me and she said, Daryl, has anybody ever taught you how to study history? And I said, no. So she took me aside in her own time after school for about an hour at a time. And for about five, six sessions, she taught me how to study. Pick a theme, pick the key words, have subpoints on those key words and try to remember the stories and how they link together. I still study the same way today. She took me aside and taught me how to study history. One of the things that she said, not unique to her, many a cynic and many a philosopher said this, one of the things we learn from history is we don't learn anything from history. We repeat it again and again and again. That seems to me to be true of our spiritual journey as well, our spiritual history, and it certainly is true of Israel in this section of God's Word. There are repeat events. God exposes them to something to test them, to see what is in their heart, to train them, to show them how they should do it, and then he'll repeat the experience. From Exodus all the way through to Deuteronomy, you'll get several times the experiences being repeated, and you'll see Israel, more often than not, failing. More often than not, grumbling and complaining, not learning the lesson. Don't know if you're into movies, but there was a movie a uh, long time ago called Groundhog Day. Seen it? It's about a guy who was destined to repeat the events of the day until he learns how he should behave. He's a pretty selfish individual, but he becomes a transformed, caring, loving individual. Or more contemporary, you may have seen Tom Cruise in Live, Die, Repeat. Anybody seen that? Hand up. Time to confess sin. Who has seen Live, Die, Repeat? What? Three people. It's a very good movie. It's only a war-based. And it's Tom Cruise. And there is evasing Martians or what, not aliens. And, and he's been bitten by one of them. And so he's destined to repeat every day until he learns how to fight and to defeat the enemy. Well, in the same way, that's what God's doing with Israel here. And that's what God does with us. He puts us through similar experiences in order to teach us and to train us. The book of Deuteronomy, if you're taking notes, Deuteronomy chapter 8. And all of chapter 8 is relevant, but right at the beginning it says, this is Moses' final farewell sermon to the people of Israel. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter the, um, and possess the land that the Lord promised on earth to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. What's happening to Israel is what's happening to us. Israel's journey, and the reason this is told for us, is because there's a parallel to us. Just as they were under the oppression of a wicked ruler, so were we, bound in sin and under Satan's rule and dominion. Just as God sent a mediator or a deliverer, so he sent for us Jesus. Just through the blood of the Lamb as they were delivered, so are we through the blood of the Lord Jesus. 
just as Jesus passed through the Red Sea, you know, the waters of death and came victorious on the other side. So we have identified with him and the waters of baptism that we have been baptised in and identified with Christ. Just as they came out on the other side to sing songs of praise, but also to follow God's lead and to learn his word and to walk in obedience to him until you arrive at the promised land. Well, we're on a similar path and a similar journey. Uh, I won't have time this morning, but if you're taking notes, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 11, is the Apostle Paul's commentary upon this section of Scripture. And he basically says, what happened to them is an example for us. Don't follow the negative things that they did. Don't grumble. But likewise, uh, follow the things that they got right. Listen to God and walk in obedience to him. Verse 6 and verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 10 particularly says it's an example for us to follow. So Israel's experience is in fact for our learning and for our benefit and I hope we pick that up this morning. So let's jump in. I guess I could say this by way of introduction as well, that while God had gotten Egypt, uh, Israel out of Egypt, he's now in the process of getting Egypt out of Israel. While God has delivered us from the dominion penalty of sin, he's now in the process of sanctifying us. Having saved us, he's trying to uh, decrease the influence, the power of sin in us. That's God's agenda. That'll do. That's a nice summary of, I think, what this is about. God is a God who is at work in our world. Can you guys see that? Is that big enough? Put up your hand if you can't see it. Oh, everybody can see it. Good. God is a God who is at work in our world, and I've shown you this several times over the years. Um, The letters stand for this. Um, WD stands for the Word of God. God takes His Word, the Scriptures... The WK stands for work. God's Holy Spirit is at work within us. He is at work in us, both the will and to do of his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. And he responds to our personal commitment. He gives us both trials and time to mature and grow. And God also works through other believers, other people, but particularly other believers. So that's how God is at work in our world today and what he's been doing in our lives. It's his word, the work of his spirit within us, our response to that in terms of our commitment, God giving us both time but also trials, tests and he often use other believers to shape us, to hone us, to expose what is in us in order that we can humble ourselves and when necessary change, repent, give up or start something, take on board something so that we become more and more like the Lord Jesus, following him as best we can. Jesus, of course, did it perfectly. The apostles reminded um, the early Christians, Acts 14, 22, it's through much tribulation, much hardship, that we must enter the kingdom of God. It's part of our journey, it's part of the process that we are going through, simply because we are following Jesus does not mean we'll be delivered from all troubles and trials. In fact, I think, Now that we follow the Lord Jesus, sometimes the trials are increased because now they have a divine purpose. So here is Israel in the wilderness, chapter 15, verse 22. Moses has led them away from the Red Sea and they now head off into the desert. In the desert, there's usually a a well or an oasis and it's about a day apart. 
Well, this time Israel had gone three days into the wilderness and they had found no water. God set them up deliberately to expose what is in their heart. And then when they come over the horizon, they finally see water. They must have rejoiced, they must have felt relieved. And get a picture of it in your mind. If there's about two million of them, if they're about ten across, then it would have gone for about 400 kilometres. That's a long line of people. The front of the Israelites' nation would have stopped walking 400 kilometres before the back of it. So it would have been days apart. So the front of these guys have gone three days into the wilderness, no water. They finally come across something, an oasis called, and it gets called Mara now, but Mara means bitter. And it was given that name to remind Israel of this very experience. Do you remember the story of Ruth? Her mother-in-law's name was Naomi. And she came back to Israel. She said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Bitter. God's done terrible things to me and I've been afflicted. That's this same word, Mara. God had led his people to a situation where it was bitter. They experienced bitterness not just on the outside, but because God wanted to expose the bitterness that was on the inside. In my notes it says that it's not often an outward experience that causes us to complain. It's our response, what's coming from within, that leads to the complaining. God puts us in situations which are difficult, which frustrate us, hurt us, cause us to be fearful or anxious or something else because he's wanting to expose the reactions that we are having and he's trying to grow us out of them, trying to grow us through them. That's certainly what he's doing here, learning to trust God in whatever situation we are in. So then Moses cried out to the Lord. He does the right thing. The Israelites did the wrong thing. What should they have done? They should have cried out to God. God, could you help us please? They don't. They complain against Moses and his leadership and they blame him. You led us here. Hang on. I thought they were following a flopping great big cloud. Cloud by day, fire by night. Wasn't that the presence of the Lord? Who led them here? The Lord led them here. They don't blame the Lord. They blame Moses, the Lord's representative. And as we go through this story, you'll discover something, a spiritual truth. When you complain, when we grumble, and we all do, and it's something we have to grow through and out of, when we complain and when we grumble about situations or about people, it's actually the Lord that we're complaining against. You have to think about it. But who put you in this situation? He did. Who's allowing this to happen? He is. Who is to blame? He is. But we don't blame him directly. We blame him through his representatives or through others or something else. As I said, we all do it. It's all part of our sinful nature. We all have this innate tendency to not want to rely fully upon God, to be a little bit independent. So God is teaching us, teaching Israel through this situation, to trust him in it. In the book of Hebrews, if you take a note, write these two verses down because they'll apply all the way through. The book of Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 14 and 15. Say, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it 
that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Make every effort to live in peace, be holy. See to it that you don't fall short of God's grace, embrace his grace and make sure no bitter root grows in you causing trouble and defiling many. Bitterness spreads, as you'll see through this story. God used the, these bitter experiences, I said, to expose their bitter attitudes. God could have led them straight to Elam, but he didn't. He led them first to Marah because he was testing them, training them, wanting to shape them. And he's doing the same thing with Moses. The remarkable thing is that God in his grace shows Moses, having cried out to the Lord, shows him a piece of wood, a tree or a branch and throws that into these vast waters. And somehow, miraculously, that piece of wood removes the bitterness. That which is unpalatable suddenly becomes quite sweet and drinkable. It's a miracle. You know, people have tried to look for a natural explanation and there isn't one. There's too much water... And it's just God doing something special. When you get into difficulty, look to the Lord and he can turn bitterness into sweetness. He can change you as well as change your outward circumstances. And that's the thing to watch. If we're in a difficult situation, awkward circumstances, and we have the wrong attitude in here, then when God changes the outward circumstances, and he will, then we are left with those bad attitudes still in us. And that's our responsibility to deal with those. Otherwise, we, oh, that's changed. We just simply bury it and we go along. And then when we're in the repeat situation, this comes back up again. And God will put you on repeat. Let's do this again. Until we learn that we are not to respond this way, but we are to respond by trusting the Lord and calling out to him, letting him work his purposes out in us. It's a valuable lesson and a difficult lesson to learn. That's why he left us here. You've undoubtedly thought of this. Why doesn't God save us when we come to Jesus and then just transfer us straight to the promised land? Poof. Straight from triumph of becoming a follower of Jesus and then in the very throne room of heaven. Wouldn't that be excellent? Wouldn't that be excellent? Yeah, well, God agrees with you. God doesn't take shortcuts. God has saved us, now he's going to sanctify us. Now he's going to grow us and change us and teach us more about him and more about ourselves so that we grow and become more like the Jesus. That's the journey that we are on through life's ups and downs. It's part of everyday life for us. With God, seeking to become more like him. This week after this service, you will, after the music stops... You walk away from this service, you're going to seven days that you've never travelled through before. Travel with God through those seven days. Good circumstances, bad circumstances, see what's exposed in your heart. He's training you and he's trying to disciple you to become more like the Lord Jesus. People drink, they rest up there and then God very well leads them to the next oasis, Elam, where they again camp and there are 12 springs, 12 wells, an abundance of water again, enough for each one of the tribes of Israel. 70 palm trees, enough for one of the 70 elders of Israel. It's an abundance, that's the picture. God leaves them there for a while, they get refreshed and replenished and then he will lead them on. 
God can and often does lead us from Mara, place of bitterness and difficulty, to Elam, place of pleasantness. Question, where are you right now? At Mara? Things are tough, awkward, hard, difficult, disappointing, frustrating. Or are you at Elam, where things are really nice and cosy and pleasurable and life is good? Or are you, are you on your way towards Mara? Or maybe even coming out of Mara, heading towards Elam? Ultimately, of course, whether you're at Mara or at Elam in this world, there is an ultimate promised land which is coming. That's where we're headed, heaven itself, and we're to keep our eyes there. The question the children of Israel were asking when they got to Mara was, can God look after us? It's a good question. Can God provide for us? And God challenges them. If you listen to me and if you obey me, I will not send upon you any of the diseases or the plagues or judgments that I send upon Israel. If you do this, then I'll do that. Notice the connection between obedience and health which makes sense because he's the creator he made the body and so his instructions is how we should look after ourselves the passage is not saying that you will never get sick that you will never suffer or anything like that passage doesn't say that what god does say is if you walk in obedience to me if you listen to my instructions if you do what i require you to do pay carefully then i will not bring these judgments upon you but of course israel didn't and so these, some of these things do happen to them. It's a warning for us. We are much better off when we listen to God and follow him. Well, let's move on. Chapter 16. Uh, go. Thank you. Chapter 16 says, The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of... Now, it looks like sin, but it's not sin. It's sign. It's pronounced sign. Just like the book of... There's a bloke in the Bible called Job, but it's spelt Job. But we say Job. So this is not sin. It's not the desert of sin, of transgression and iniquity. It's the desert of sign. It's related to the word Sinai. Sinai Mountain, this is the desert of sign. As in a trigonometry, isn't it? There's a sign language whatever so the whole israelite community set out from elam come to the desert of sign which is between elam and mount sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they came out of egypt the reference to the time is simply to say we're one month in one month after having left egypt one month after all of god's judgment one month after the passer one month after the red sea all of these miraculous things have happened to them one month later in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. One month later, the Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food that we wanted. But you have brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And the Lord graciously, again testing them, says to Moses, I will, round down, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to uh, go out each day and gather enough for that day. 
In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and they are to take in as twice as much as they gather on the other day. So Moses and Aaron gather the Israelites together, and they said, OK, tonight you want meat, you're going to get meat. The quail fly from Africa to Europe and back from Europe back to Africa, and they fly over this particular Sinai Peninsula, this science section of the world. And when they fly, they fly low, often driven by the winds. And sometimes, if they're exhausted from the... When they fly, they're about three feet off the ground, um, and you can throw nets over them and catch them. But sometimes, they can land exhausted from the distance they've come. You don't need a net. You can quite simply pick them up and catch them. That night, God had the quail land all around them. They had quail everywhere. In their tents, all around them, everywhere else, and they gorged themselves, the psalmist says. They ate as much quail as they liked. Medium, rare, with garlic, whatever. Delicacies. The next morning, and the reason God did that was so that you will know that I am the Lord, that I led you here, that I can provide for you. The next morning, the Jew, when they wake up and the Jew is, uh, the sun dries out, the evaporates, then underneath are these white flaky substance. And the Jews, the Jewish people said, what is it? What is it? What is it is the Hebrew word manna. So manna, which is what we call the name of the bread, is actually, what is it? They don't know what it is. And so of all the natural explanations to try and find it's the product of an insect which is there in the area, if it's a product of this particular plant, are all inadequate, that can't meet the biblical criteria. This is something miraculous that God provided every day for two million people. Enough bread is what it's called. Bread of angels is what the psalmist calls it. Gathered enough of that. And the instruction was on every day... Per person, every person in every tent in Israel was to go out and to gather up. And they could gather up, the Bible says, is it in verse 10? An omer. I can't see it for looking there. They had to go and gather an omer. And you'll say, how much is an omer? Well, it tells us, down in verse 32, take an omer of men and keep it in the generations and so on. Verse 36 says, an omer is a tenth of an ephah. Does that help? What that means, by the way, is this story was passed on. And now the next generation, when this has been written down by Moses, there were people who didn't know what an omer was. So Moses had, an omer is the tenth of an ephah. Doesn't make any sense to us, but biblical scholars have done their research. It's about two kilograms, one and a half kilograms, two kilograms, roughly, per person, per day, six days a week. And then miraculously, on the... Friday, on the Friday evening before the Sabbath, they were to collect double the amount. What they found, Moses said, collect as much as you want. Some gathered a lot, some gathered a little. Everybody had just enough, just right. They cooked it, they boiled it, they stewed it. What is Keith Green's song? They had manna burgers, manna sandwiches, manna pancakes, banana manners, the manna this, manna that. By the time you get to Numbers chapter 11, they were sick of the manna, or some people were sick of the manna. And they longed for the leeks and the garlic and the meat pots of Egypt again. History repeating itself. Sadly, in Exodus 16, <clears throat> well, verse 17 says, The Israelites did as they were told, 
at last. Yahoo. Verse 20, Moses says, Now when you collect it, don't try and save any up for the next day. Verse 20 says, However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and it began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. And then Moses says on the Friday, Now today, gather up double the amount. And most people did. But verse 27 tells us, Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they didn't find any. Do you see the pattern? Do this. Israel did what God said, but some people didn't. They tried storing it up, and it stank. That's what disobedience does. Gather double the amount and then store it up for the next day, and God will preserve it. And some people didn't. Most people did, some people didn't. Which leads to verse 28 in chapter 16. Um, The Lord said to Moses, How long... Will these people refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? How long has this got to go on for? Even God's getting frustrated. And so it's a miraculous provision of God providing this wonderful product. And there's a description of it in in, uh, that chapter about it was white. It tasted a little bit like coriander and it tasted like honeys with waffle and something like that. But the chapter exposes again. Here is a test and some of the people complain some of them didn't follow the instructions carefully and the people started to complain again about Moses daily tests the final one in the passage that Tony read to us well before I get to that let me ask you these few things is your obedience up to date are you doing what God wants you to do Do you need God to provide for you? Are you in a situation of need where you need God to intervene and do something? Then let me encourage you because God knows your needs before you ask him. God is in control of events. God's timing is perfect. When I say that, I hesitate because I like what one theologian has said or one author has written. God always appears almost late. God always, almost, appears late. Almost. He's never late. He's always on time. But often it seems to us that it's not on time. And I think that's a true reflection. God stretches our patience and reliance on him. And God is a God who promises to supply our needs. What we need to do is ask him. He knows what you need. He's controlling events. His timing is stretching you, testing you. Wait on him. And he is the God who can supply. Thirdly, if you're caught up like some of the children of Israel in complaining about your circumstances of what's going on in your life, complaining blinds us to the reality of what God is doing. It focuses on what is wrong, not on what is right or on It blinds us to the question of, God, what are you doing? What do you want me to be doing in this awful, awkward situation? Faith, on the other hand, that trusts God is one that is grateful that God is in control and is looking forward to the best is yet to come. Even though this is difficult, I'm trusting God. 
He'll either get me through this or he'll get me to the promised land. Fourthly and finally, as I said before, we instinctively resist a lifestyle which is, requires us to depend fully on God. God wants us to do that and so he's training Israel and training us in exactly doing that. I need to hasten on. They leave um, the deserts of Sinai and they come to a place called Rephidim. In Rephidim, repeat, no water. What should they do? Pray. What do they do? Complain. What does Moses do? It's actually, it's escalated, it's gotten worse. The Hebrew word in verse 2 now is they quarrelled with Moses. It's a far more intense word. And in verse 4, they've become a little bit more violent. Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And, Moses, and the Lord says to him, go out in front of the people, take your staff with you, take some of the elders with you and go to the rock. The NIV says, I'll stand by the rock. Probably it's more accurately to translate it as, I will stand on the rock. You've got this cloud of glory, the Lord's presence itself on this rock. And Moses is to take his staff and to strike at once. A picture, of course, of the Lord Jesus being our rock, struck for us from which living water flows. For the Israelites, it's physical water and they, their thirst is replenished. For us, it's the Holy Spirit, spiritual water being poured out for us. John chapter 7, you know, waters of life. Holy Spirit within. It's a picture that'll be repeated. And next time Moses, out of anger, will fail and he'll strike the right twice, which is not what God said to do. And because he does that, he is not allowed to go into the promised land. These people are complaining, give us water. Why did you bring us here? Verse 7. Is God with us or not? Do you see what complaining and grumbling and the negative attitude towards things is? It's really, and in chapter 17, it's, you're not compl- who are we? Moses says. We're, we're the Lord's servants. We didn't lead you here, we're following him. He led us here. You're not complaining against us, you're complaining against him. Now, he's not being self-defensive. I think he's trying to educate them spiritually about what's going on. Lift your eyes, people. The Lord is the one who is here. Look to him. Let him work his purposes out. Because of time, let me go to the end. Moses didn't want them to forget this, so he names that place Massah and Meribah. Remember these words he says the place of quarreling the place of the lord testing you and then you'll have psalm 95 hebrews chapter 4 repeating this very story and the test is don't harden your hearts against god when he's testing you listen to what he's doing and respond obediently to him here are some questions and then three conclusions number one what is god doing in your life Can God look after you? Is God with you? Will you do as he instructs? Has God brought you back in a repeat situation? Is that happening again for you? What does God want you to learn then in the situation you find yourself in? Will you call out to him for help? Or... Have you been grumbling against God's will? What do you need to do? Here are three suggestions. 
Collect daily manna from the scripture and learn more about God's character, his will and his purposes. Just like the Israelites gathered manna day by day, so gather um, nourishment from scripture. Whether it's large or small is not important, but do it daily. Secondly, look to God. Let him work, in your, let him work his purposes out in your life. Trust him. Thirdly, be careful not to defile yourself or others or to dishonour him by harbouring an attitude of um, negativity, of complaining, of bitterness, of disgruntlement. Look to the Lord, trust him to work the situations out. Let's pray together. Lord, you are the sovereign God. You are the one who has put us on this path of sanctification, of growing and learning more about you as well as about ourselves. Lord, when we find ourselves in difficult situations of you testing us, could you help us to grow through it, to look to you, to grow in you, to grow in trusting you? Forgive us, Lord. Thank you that you are patient with us. Please forgive us for the times when we don't look to you, when we rather look to others and blame them or blame situations. Instead of trusting you, we try to fix it ourselves. Lord, you help us to humble ourselves, to listen carefully to all that you say and to do what you require, to look to you and help us not to infect or affect others in a negative way Lord this is your will and purpose for each of us and so we ask for it and pray for it in Jesus name Amen Our Heavenly Father sent his son Jesus into our world to teach us these things and to train us, it's a beautiful name let's stand and sing about him what a beautiful name